the more rigidly we adhere to sex being one way, often over time, the less sex we're having because there becomes so much context that can get in the way of that particular script. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. If you've ever been involved in a long-term sexual relationship, you've probably found that there were times when you and your partner, or partners, whatever the case might be, weren't on the same page about sex. Specifically, there were probably times when one of you wanted sex and the other one didn't. This happens. It's normal. But sometimes a persistent discrepancy in sexual desire develops. And when this goes on for months, or maybe even years, it can become a significant source of conflict and distress. So let's talk about sexual desire discrepancies. I have a two-part series for you on this subject where we're going to address both sides of this issue. Specifically, today, we're going to focus on navigating desire discrepancies when you're the one who wants less sex than your partner. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about what to do when you're the partner who wants more sex than the other. My guest today is Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy, a licensed psychologist and ASEC-certified sex therapist. She specializes in sexual health and relationships and owns her own private practice in a suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota. She is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Desire, an inclusive guide to navigating libido differences in relationships. Her co-author of this book, Jennifer Vensil, will be my guest in the next episode. This is going to be a very interesting and very important conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Have you ever wondered how sex differs around the world? The Sexual Health Alliance can help you to expand your knowledge through their study abroad programs. Join Shaw in exploring different cultures, engaging in immersive learning experiences, and collaborating with international experts in the field of sexuality, while also traveling to amazing places and making new friends. Whether you join them for an online conference, enroll in a certification program, or embark on a transformative study abroad adventure, Shaw provides a platform to elevate your career. You might even get the chance to study in a foreign country with yours truly. Come meet amazing people, gain valuable insights, and be at the forefront of sexual health education. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com to learn more and secure your spot today. Hi, Lauren, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. So you recently co-authored a book on discrepant sexual desire in relationships. And in the show, we're going to focus on what to do when you're the partner with lower desire. And in the next episode, we're going to speak with your co-author on what to do when you're the partner with higher desire. But before we dive in, let me first ask, as a sex therapist, How often do you see sexual desire discrepancies in your practice? What do we know about how common this sexual problem is anecdotally and also in terms of the research? 
You know, it's the number one concern that's brought to sex therapists. I've been specializing in sex and relationships and sex therapy for over 10 years. And it's probably, you know, the number one complaint that people bring or concern that they have. And when I ask other sex therapists, it seems to be across the board. So it's not just from my own practice, but um, seems to be really common. And that just makes a lot of sense when you have two or more people in a dynamic who have some differences that those differences are going to emerge. And this is one of the areas in which that tends to happen. Yeah. So it's not just you, it's therapists across the board. (laughs) It's across the board, and it seems to be some consensus around it. In terms of a prevalence rate, we actually don't have good data on this. I read a Psychology Today article that had one study that said something around the 80% of relationship mark, and I, I don't really know the the details of that study. But when we look at the research, there really isn't a solid prevalence rate that we have because it's still, I think, an understudied area in terms of um, sex research. So with anecdotal, you know, sort of evidence in our estimates, we tend to think this happens for most partnerships, at least some of the time, if not more perpetually. The data point that I usually cite for this, and you're right, there's not a lot out there that you can draw from, but it comes from the NATSAL, which is a British national sex survey that's conducted every so often. And I know in one of the recent waves of data collection, they asked people about sexual difficulties they might have experienced in the last year specifically. And they found that for both men and women, around one in four of them reported having some type of problem centering around a difference in level of sexual desire between themselves and their partner. And so that would suggest that it's a pretty common thing. And, you know, that was just like within the last year, not over the course of an entire relationship. So there's definitely something to this that it's a pretty common sexual problem. And it did rank higher up there than a lot of other sexual health issues that we hear about frequently, you know, things like erectile difficulties and arousal problems and so forth. So discrepancies around desire are a really common relationship issue. Really common. There was actually a study that was led by uh, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, who's a well-known sex researcher, and something to the effect that the title of that study was that discrepancies are a feature and not a bug in relationships, that this is just that common and essentially to be expected. Yeah, (laughs) I know. And that's, it's one of those things, like when I teach human sexuality courses, I know it's like distressing to students when I tell them, you know, you're going to have to expect problems that emerge in your sex life and in your relationship. We're not guaranteed of having like a perfect (laughs) run of it, you know? So I think that's, a healthy outlook to have is to recognize like, hey, problems will emerge at some point. But as long as you have what we call a growth mindset where you recognize like, hey, problems will arise, but we can work through them, then that's what gives you what you need to be able to start to work through those types of issues. Yeah. You know, there's also folks who, if we can build this in as a reasonable expectation for sexual relationships, the hope is that that can be viewed maybe less as a problem and more as just, you know, again, a feature of long-term relationship and just having some tools or ideas of how to navigate that when it does inevitably arise. 
Yeah. And if you can anticipate that, you know, this is likely to happen at some point, then A, it's not a surprise. And B, you'll be better equipped, better prepared when it comes to handling it. Exactly. So in a desire discrepancy, it's usually defined as partners wanting different amounts of sex. Sometimes it's defined as partners wanting different types of sex, which can also be confounded with the amount. Because if your partner wants a different type of sex, having that at all might be seen as too much, right? So, you know, there are different ways to define this. But these discrepancies can be present from the very beginning of a relationship. So sometimes there's an issue right off the bat, but it's often something that emerges over time where two people kind of start out, you know, I say two people because most people are in monogamous relationships. Desire discrepancies can also emerge in polyamorous and open and other types of non-monogamous relationships. But it often happens that in the beginning, the partners are kind of on the same page, have similar levels of desire, and then it tends to drop off more for one person than the other. So let's talk about that. What are some of the factors that might occur that can negatively affect libido and lead to a decline in sexual desire for someone in a relationship? You know, most often what we tend to see is that it seems like there's sort of these two different styles of desire that partners tend to have, whether it's in sort of a a really a great discrepancy or a, a more, you know, minimal discrepancy, but there's often one partner who has a more spontaneous style of desire. And what that means is exactly sort of what it sounds like, that their desire just sort of emerges maybe more quickly. It maybe um, emerges seemingly out of the blue. It maybe doesn't take a lot of buildup to get desire on board. And there are many partnerships where one person has that type of desire style and maintains that type of desire style over the course of the long term. There's often a partnership where one person has more of that style and the other has more of what we call a responsive desire style. And that's where it maybe takes a little bit of more buildup for desire to emerge, or it's like after arousal occurs, desire sort of comes on board second. So these folks tend to partner up. And I don't know if we know exactly, you know, why that might be. Um, There's all kinds of things that we can talk about that can impact libido. But what happens for folks who tend to have a more predominantly responsive desire style is at the beginning of a relationship during that honeymoon period where we're just really high on the newness, the novelty, the excitement, and that new relationship energy. Desire could sort of more look like spontaneous desire and mirror you know, their partner's level of spontaneous desire or frequency of preferred sexual activity. And so it looks like partners match up a lot more at the beginning. And as a relationship gets more comfortable and familiar and you get to really start to know each other and that honeymoon phase shifts into something that's more comfortable one partner's what seemed to be spontaneous desire actually starts to transform to maybe what it is at its baseline, which is more of a responsive style. It just looked more spontaneous during the honeymoon phase. And so you hear a lot of people say, why can't we just go back to you know what it was like at the beginning? And the tricky thing is that your partner can be a lot of things, but they they can't ever be new to you again. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, too bad. I wish they could. But. It really sucks. I know. It's the, you know, the bad news that comes with that. That, you know, there's a lot of fun that comes with that new part of the relationship. And it's certainly confusing because a lot of people don't know that that's what's happening. And they think that something's wrong. They think that, you know, I had this more spontaneous desire at the beginning and now it doesn't operate like that. And so something is wrong either with me or with the relationship. Yeah, that does happen a lot. And I think you're right that when these kinds of discrepancies emerge, we need to think about, well, what is my baseline? How often do I typically experience desire for sex when I'm not in the honeymoon or passion phase of a relationship? Because that's just a very intense, very different time that doesn't last forever. It would be great if it did, you know, but the typical time course for passion is usually, you know, six months to two years or so is what we tend to see in the research. Some people do tend to keep passion alive longer. I think that that is more likely to occur in people where, you know, there's a relationship where both partners tend to have more of that spontaneous desire. And maybe it just makes it a little easier to do that, especially if they're interjecting a lot of novelty into the relationship. But when partners kind of have these different styles of desire, you have to figure out some way to try and bridge that. So that can be one of the factors involved here. But, you know, as you discuss in your book, there are so many things that can impact sexual desire. You know, there can be individual factors with you in terms of your personal health or changes in hormone levels that might occur as a result of aging. There might be cultural and societal factors impacting how you feel about sex and sexual shame. There might be relationship factors like the amount of conflict in your relationship and, you know, having unresolved issues, you know, with with your partner. So, yeah, can you just talk a little bit more about some of the other myriad factors that might play a role in sexual desire discrepancies? Yeah, absolutely. And the cultural narrative can be sometimes quick to jump to like one or two variables and really inflate the importance or significance. You know, oh, my hormones must be off. Or, um, you know, my relationship is really in trouble. And we kind of have, you know, a couple of things that we can kind of scapegoat as like, that's the thing. And or it's, porn, you know, or porn. Like to say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Something that seems sort of like it's all encompassing and, and perhaps has sort of a quick fix. Like if I just get on some sort of, you know, pill to balance my hormones, or if we just, you know, stop fighting with each other, or if we, you know, if only this thing, then this wouldn't be an issue. So many, so many variables, basically anything that can affect you as an individual or as partners can affect your libido. And so it's not like these things exist in a vacuum. If you live in a really stressful environment, if you have a lot of disconnection in your partnership, if you are uh, experiencing a lot of work stress, if the kids are like running rampant around the house, all of these things can impact your libido. And what's interesting is that stress, which is an underpinning of a lot of these things, impacts people's libidos differently. Some people have more interest in sex when they're stressed because stress is relieved or alleviated in part by having sexual activity. Whereas other people, it's the furthest thing from their mind and they really need to de-stress first. And so, you know, all of these variables can have different impact 
on different people. For one person, it, it moves them away from sex. Another person, it moves them toward. And those people tend to partner with each other. <laughs> yeah, you know, and this has me thinking back to my college days. Like, I had some friends who, you know, when finals and midterms came around, they were like having sex like crazy, right? Because stress was something that kind of prompted them to use sex as a way of relaxing or coping with it. You know, they got hornier when they went through those more stressful periods of the semester. But then I had other friends who sex was the furthest thing from their mind. Like they're focused on their studies. They're anxious about what their grades are going to be. They can't think about sex at all. And it's also true that things like depression and mental health, you know, they affect us in different ways. Some people, when they're depressed, actually become hornier and they engage in more sexual behavior. And oftentimes it's more thrill-seeking and risky sexual behavior. But then there are other people when they're going through a depressive episode who just totally withdraw from sex. So everything is complex and it's all about this interaction between the person and their environment. And so, you know, when we're talking about low sexual desire and the factors that might impact it, you can't have these one-size-fits-all answers. It's different things for different people. And we need to take that biopsychosocial lens. Absolutely. It's very contextual. It's very individual. And even at the individual level, something that is a turn on for one is a turn off for another. You know, one of the things that really um, was important that came out of our research is that historically, we sort of look to one partner as the quote unquote problem. And often that's the lower libido partner. We look to them and say, your libido isn't up to par, you have a partner who wants more sex, let's figure out what's wrong with you so that you can have more sex. And we use the higher libido partner as that barometer. And the problem with that is that you could have a different discrepancy depending on who you're partnered with. Exactly. And so that really gets you questioning, is this a, a me thing or a we thing? And the direction that we're going and what seems to make the most sense is really seeing this as a dynamic between people, both a dynamic that's to be expected, but also one that's not pathologizing any one person's level of desire because there's nothing inherently wrong with not having much desire for sex. There's also nothing inherently wrong with having more desire for sex. But when they don't connect for each person when they're different, then you've got sort of a dilemma in how do we navigate this? And most of the distress is around mismanagement of that rather than the issue itself. Yeah. And you totally anticipated my next question because I was going to talk about how when you say lower desire versus higher desire partner, you know, these things are relative to one another. And so you're absolutely right that somebody who in their current relationship might be the lower desire partner, if they were partnered with somebody else, they might very well be the higher desire partner in that particular case. So, you know, when we're using the terms low and high here, you have to keep in mind that it's relative to that specific relationship. And so when you're talking about desire discrepancies, they're not a problem of one individual. It's a relationship problem. That's the way uh, that you need to look at it. But I think there's an important question as a follow-up to ask to that, which is how do you know whether 
you're just somebody with lower desire, but it's still a healthy amount of desire versus whether you have a low level of desire that could be clinically diagnosed as a sexual difficulty. Like when does it cross the line between being lower desire to being a sexual difficulty? It's a great question. And then also another layer to that is when is that an orientation? When is that a asexuality, demisexuality, that it's actually pointing to a lack of sexual attraction? Just making that question even more complex. Our take, and in my practice, is I, I actually don't diagnose sexual health disorders. I don't use them anymore. I used to many years ago. But I don't use them anymore because I think they are pathologizing the normal variation and spectrum of human sexuality. And desires are different levels. Interests are are vast. Preferences are vast. I don't come to it from the lens of like this is a hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is what the DSM used to call it. And I think of it more as just different variations. When it's a quote-unquote problem is when that discrepancy is so wide between partners that it's really hard to find any kind of livable middle ground or to co-create something that feels sustainable long-term. And again, I, I think less now, and this might have been different years ago, but now I think of that less as like, oh, you have, you know, quote unquote, low sexual desire, you have a disorder, we need to treat it and fix it. But more, what does this mean for the relationship? And the fact that we are maybe really wide in this discrepancy, what are we going to do about that to decrease distress for you as partners? And so I still kind of bring it back to the relational lens. I appreciate everything that you said. And different psychologists, therapists think about this issue in different ways. But, you know, there is an important point in what you're saying, which is that there's some subjectivity to what we term or label a sexual difficulty as a field. And another example of this would be if you think about something like premature or early ejaculation, you know, there are lots of people who look at that as a sexual problem. But I actually know many people who find that same thing to be really arousing. Like if a partner ejaculates very quickly, they take that as a sign of validation. Like it's the ultimate turn on for them that somebody can orgasm so quickly and, and sometimes hands free, right? And so, you know, one person's sexual difficulty is another person's sexual desire. And so, yeah, I think you're right that we shouldn't get too hung up on some of the labels that we attach to all of this stuff and really need to focus on, you know, how it's subjectively experienced by the individual. Is it distressing to them in their current relationship context or not? And if it is, then, you know, that's something that's worth addressing. But if it's not a problem for the partners, we shouldn't be labeling problems where problems don't exist. That's right. You know, one of the other things that I like to ask folks is, what is your low desire for? Like, what do you have low interest in? What is that about? Because often when we look at like, what does low desire mean? Folks have a pretty specific sort of script or lens with which they're applying that word. You know, I have a low interest in this particular type of sex in this particular way that involves these parts. But they may be low desire for one 
particular thing and not others. And when we have this lens that like sex is a package and it has to involve X, Y, Z parts and it always goes together, maybe you don't love Z, but you really enjoy X. And if your only experience of X is with Y and Z, then it's really hard to experience desire for just the thing you enjoy because it's always coming as a package. Yeah. That's a great way to think about it. Sex does not have to be a package deal. <laughs> you know, you can just choose certain items from the menu or just one item. It doesn't have to be the whole shebang. Yeah. And someone may be like, I'm really high desire for a makeout session, but maybe I'm low desire for an orgasm. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's really about the nuance then of like, what if my partner is lower desire for the makeout, but higher desire for the the orgasm? How do we navigate those differences. Um, and there's not one answer that works for everybody. Unfortunately, there never is. Unfortunately. <laughs> but let's talk about some tips and strategies for navigating desire discrepancies when you're the lower desire partner. So you have a whole chapter in your book that revolves around working on your own relationship with yourself, because sometimes low libido is a product of that particular relationship. So, for example, you might have some internalized sexual shame or body image issues, or maybe you've just never spent much time exploring your body to know what it is that brings you pleasure and what you really want when it comes to sex. You know, there's a surprisingly large number of people, when you ask them what they want from sex, they don't know, they don't have an answer for that because they've never really thought about it or explored that or had a partner who encouraged them to explore that or who was invested in their pleasure. So can you give us some practical tips on how to improve that relationship that we have with ourselves as a means of dealing with low libido? Yeah, absolutely. You know, most of the folks I speak to who have low libido tend to identify with more of that responsive desire style. And so when we start to unpack, like, what does that mean and the different types of desire and how that might work? What we uncover is more often than not the responsive style. And what that means is that the desire emerges in response to pleasure, not in anticipation of pleasure, to quote Emily Nagoski. So what we want to work with is finding what's pleasurable for you. And to your point, most folks, you know, might come in with just sort of a dumbfounded face. What do you mean? Like, I, I don't even... I don't even think about this. I don't make time for this. Or I might come from a background that was downright negative towards pleasure, that that is, you know, not what you should be spending your time doing. And so looking at even just pleasure as a whole and maybe starting there, because pleasure is so intertwined for so many people with desire. Why would you desire something that you don't enjoy? So, I mean, that just makes good sense to not desire something that you don't enjoy. So what's pleasurable? And there's different areas in which pleasure can be experienced. This can be tactile pleasure. Is there like a, a sensation, like a pillow or a blanket or something I like to sort of touch and feel? Is that a taste? There's certain things that are just really delicious. And do you allow yourself to savor that and experience that and really taste it when you're tasting it? It could be, you know, scent. So it's often a sensory type of experience, but that doesn't just live in the sexual or sensual. It can also be in the relational. It can be in the spiritual. It can be in the intellectual domain. So it can be across 
multiple domains. And one place is just, you know, what brings me pleasure sitting with that and, and pondering that and maybe even taking some time to invite more pleasure in. Yeah. Invite more pleasure in. I love that. And, you know, there are so many different ways you can do that, ways you can explore it. You know, for some people, tacking on to the sensory thing you were mentioning, just the feel of new underwear or lingerie or not wearing any, for some people kind of changes the way that you feel about yourself. And that can be one of the things that kind of invokes pleasure for some people. So it's different for everyone, but that's where exploring, being creative, trying different things, experimenting with different sensations can help you to tap into what is pleasurable for you and what can kind of start revving up that sexual desire. Yeah. The pleasure route is one. If we want to channel a little bit more towards the sexual pleasure, one of the things that we can get curious about is what do I find sexually appealing? What piques my interest? What arouses me? What excites me? What draws me in? And again, you may not have an answer to that just yet, and that would be just fine because we can just get curious about it. And with responsive desire being really sort of contextual, what are the different contexts that can elicit some sort of sexual response in me? And if you don't have an answer, maybe you start thinking backwards. Has there been a time where I found something really sexually appealing or or exciting? What did that involve? What were the elements that were present? Or you can come at it from maybe a completely blank slate and kind of think about, you know, what would be something that might be sexually provocative that I would be open to kind of experimenting with? Maybe it's um, picking up the newest sort of romance novel that has some sexy scenes in it. Maybe it's watching some movies that have some more sort of spicy content. Maybe it's downloading an audio app that has some sexy stories and just from like a completely neutral perspective, just like, what does this do for me? What is this like for me? How does this feel in my body when I explore these things? And it could also involve touch and exploration in your own body. What happens when I apply a lotion or an oil and I touch here versus there? Just coming to it with a lot of curiosity. Yeah. Exploring and being curious is something that can really help a lot in these cases. So, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about reconnecting with the self. You also have a chapter about reconnecting with your partner because sometimes sexual desire starts to wane in a relationship because there's conflict or tension or there's some emotional distance. So let's talk a little bit about that and how you kind of like reestablish a connection with a partner. Now, something that might strike some of my listeners as paradoxical is that one of the strategies you mentioned is spending more time together, you know, having more intimate time with each other. But you also talk about spending more time apart as well, right? Now, to me, that makes total sense, right? Because sometimes we can get too close with our partners, too codependent, and that can put the brakes on desire. I think maintaining great relationships and maintaining great sexual chemistry has a lot to do with how we balance the amount of closeness in our relationship with the amount of autonomy that we have as well. So can you speak a little bit about that and maybe give us a tip or two on how do you maintain a healthy level of autonomy and independence in your relationship while also still having the the closeness and 
where you're getting both of these things in a way that's going to spark intimacy and connection. Yeah, it's a paradox in some ways, but it's a duality of, you know, having enough autonomy and connection and striking that balance where those, you know, kind of have a nice way of commingling. Too much connection where we sort of feel too enmeshed and we sort of lose ourselves can be really hard to eroticize that. It can be hard to have desire for something or someone that's just like so, so much a part of you almost that you sort of lose the sense of separateness of two or more beings. There's also the fallout of too much distance and disconnect. It's like, I've barely spoken to you all week and now I'm going to get naked with you and get vulnerable with you and, and be intimate with you. And so kind of going back to how this varies across individuals and partners, this is going to look different in different relationships. And where some people feel too much closeness is going to be a different spot where, you know, other people feel like it's not enough. But this is something to maybe sort of get, again, curious about, like, how do I feel about our time together versus time apart? Are we spending maybe a little bit too much time together lately? Maybe we plan a night out where we go separate ways and do our own thing. Maybe we create a ritual around that to maintain a bit of that autonomous space. Because it's in that space that you get to, A, kind of breathe into your own individuality, but also remember that you are two or more separate people and you can maybe think about them, miss them. And that can create a bit of distance. And in distance, there can be longing. I can't wait to tell you about my, you know, evening or tell you what so-and-so said or, you know, hear about what you've been up to. And so that can be really important too. And it falls under the idea of like differentiation and interdependence and striking that balance. So, you know, over the pandemic, my husband and I realized that we were spending way too much time together. We didn't (laughs) go anywhere. We didn't see people. And so now we're kind of playing a little bit of catch up where, you know, we're having some more evenings or, you know, he's doing his thing and I'm doing my thing because it got really out of balance over that period of quarantine. And, you know, then you might notice the other side. Hey, I feel like we haven't really spent much time together lately. Let's bridge that gap. And that's going to be a constant ebb and flow that may or may not impact desire. And we can kind of just notice, is there something about that that might be helpful information for my desire? Yeah. And as you're talking about that, I was thinking about how, you know, if you're the type of person who plans date nights with your partner, whatever frequency that you plan your date nights, whether that's once a week, once every other week, once a month, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has different responsibilities, different schedules, but whatever the frequency with which you plan those date nights with your partner, you might also plan a parallel date night with yourself where you get to do your own thing. And, you know, that could be reading a book in the bathtub or it could be going out with your friends. It could be whatever it is that you want it to be, exploring or pursuing a hobby or interest that you have. But it's creating that kind of co-equal space for that quality time together and then also having that quality time with yourself. And it's easier said than done, but it's one way of potentially striking that balance. And for folks who maybe don't have the ability to 
like leave the house or go and do something, even just sometimes occupying different spaces within the home, if, if that's possible. You know, one person goes in one room and another, just to get a little bit of that sort of <laughs> physical space. <laughs> yes, I know. I resonate with that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, being in a almost quarter century relationship at this point, like sometimes you just need your space apart. Like you don't need to be together all the time. <laughs> I love you so much. Can you go away just for a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I've said those exact words. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same, same. Well, um, anything else that you would like to share on if you're the lower desired partner in a relationship? Any other tips on how you might navigate that or things to think about in terms of dealing with that desire discrepancy? You know, the other thing that I think is so important for partners is shifting and changing what their typical sexual script is. So we talked about, you know, if sex, you know, if I say we're going to have sex on Friday at eight, if you have an exact idea of what I mean, and you know it's going to be the X, Y, Z. It's got to be from, you know, X to Z. It's got to have all these parts. The more rigidly we adhere to sex being one way, often over time, the less sex we're having because there becomes so much context that can get in the way of that particular script. So I think, you know, overall kind of soundbite take home message if we can diversify and expand what you define as a sexual experience or an intimate experience if that can involve a little bit of this on one day and a little bit of that you know the kind of sex that you have when you just put the kids to bed let's say your parents on a tuesday night after a long work day is maybe going to be different than the sex you have when the kids are out of the house at someone's you know sleepover for the weekend and you have more time it's going to be different sex than you have when you're on vacation so the more we can have a variety of ways to be intimate that involves different things across context, the more likely we're going to be sexual and intimate. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it speaks to the fact that sex is often better when there's some element of spontaneity to it where you don't know exactly what it is that you're going to expect. I know that everybody has different comfort levels, boundaries, and so forth when it comes to sex. Some people might like knowing exactly what's going to happen and the order in which everything's going to unfold. But I think for most people, having that ability to explore and to be curious can open up a lot of new opportunities for pleasure, different ways to connect, and might even set the stage for experiencing more sexual desire in the future. That's right. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Lauren. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. You can find me on my website. Uh, it's uh, com, Or you can find me on social media at Mercy. And the new book is titled? It's called Desire, an inclusive guide to navigating libido differences in relationships. Well, I will be sure to include a link to it in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.